Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. And this is the BioEats World Journal Club, where every Thursday we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. So the title of this episode is My Tick Teacher. What on earth do you mean by that? We're talking today about what ticks can teach us about our own skin physiology. In last week's episode, we talked about how bacteria are locked in this eternal battle with other bacteria and how they've evolved a vast arsenal of antibacterial toxins. In today's episode, we're talking about what happens when one of the genes that encodes an antibacterial toxin jumps from the genome of a bacteria into the genome of a eukaryote. Okay, so remind me what a eukaryote is again, and what's the connection between bacteria and ticks here? A eukaryote is basically anything that's not a bacteria. Plants, fungi, animals. Ticks are best known as vectors that transmit bacteria that cause disease in humans, like Lyme disease. And the process of genes moving between different organisms is called horizontal gene transfer. And how this happens between organisms in different kingdoms is pretty mysterious, but it can have a big impact on evolution. I'm joined today by Simei Chow, an assistant professor at UCSF, to talk about how ticks acquired an antibacterial toxin gene, and then over the course of 40 million years, shaped it to their specific needs. We also talk about how bias can influence how you set up experiments and interpret data, and how an unfundable research project inspired her to found a startup. The big picture question in this paper really dates back to a study we did before this where we found that genes that encode this incredible intermicrobial warfare were stolen by eukaryotes through horizontal gene transfer. So these genes basically jumped over the course of evolution from bacteria to hosts such as ticks. So the big motivation for us was just trying to understand why. This was a pretty incredible moment in evolution, and it would potentially give us insight into why these genes were so valuable and how antimicrobial properties are used by very different organisms in the same way. And then it just opened up all sorts of other questions, how hosts control the different microbes that they interact with. And from the perspective of vector biology, you have organisms like ticks that transmit their microbes to us when they bite us and thinking about how they are able to maintain those partnerships with those bacteria and how they fend off other bacteria and the way that's all managed through their innate immune systems. Yeah, it is really interesting to think about this idea of horizontal gene transfer. So the concept is that in this particular case, a bacteria had a gene that encoded a protein that helped them kill other bacteria. And that gets adopted, transferred into the genome of the tick. And now the tick has the ability to fight off particular bacteria. Exactly. Yeah. So how would that be beneficial to the tick to be able to kill off bacteria? Well, ticks, just like us, encounter all sorts of bacteria. Some are good, some are bad, and their immune systems have to be able to differentiate and kill off the ones that are harmful. So that's a clear benefit. And this is not so different from the way we now mine bacteria for antibiotics because we basically realize that their playbook is much more sophisticated than any one that we could come up with now. That's basically what happened in evolution is that ticks and other eukaryotes stole a tool from their playbook, basically. Yeah, bacteria have been fighting bacteria for far longer than eukaryotes. So they've already figured out all the tricks. So how can we tap into those tricks? So 
Ticks have tapped into that by acquiring the ability to fend off different kinds of bacteria, but they don't want to fend off all bacteria. We know that ticks have a very stable interaction with this bacteria that causes Lyme disease, Borrelia. So does transmitting the Lyme disease bacteria benefit the tick in some way, or is that just tolerated, or does that confer some benefit to the tick as well? Usually in vector biology, when a vector such as a tick or a mosquito stably harbors something that it can transmit, there's some beneficial partnership going on there. Actually, I think what you're getting at is an issue that we just did not see clearly at the beginning of this project, which is that even though we refer to Borrelia as a pathogen because it's harmful to us as humans, that it is in no way a pathogen to ticks. And so the way the tick would use something like an antibacterial toxin against Borrelia would be very different from the way it would use it against something that was actually harmful to itself. And so at the beginning of this project, we were really focusing on the bacteria that are known to be associated with ticks and look at how it affects that. And so it took, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, it took us about two years into the project when I started my lab for that to finally click and realize that all the negative data we were getting with Borrelia made a lot of sense because actually Borrelia was evading the tick immune system and was the outlier. That is a more of a symbiotic relationship, not an antagonistic one. Right. So we think of Borrelia, this particular bacteria that causes Lyme disease, as being a pathogen. It is a pathogen to us. It causes disease in us. And so you started out this project thinking about how Borrelia was a pathogen to the tick as well. But that is not the actual reflection of the biology that you discovered. It's more that that interaction between the tick and Borrelia is at the very least not detrimental to the tick and possibly even beneficial to the tick. That's one of the really cool things that came up for us in this paper. It was an aha moment for me. This is not a new idea, but it's an important philosophical point that when we refer to a microbe as a pathogen or a symbiont, what we're actually referring to as a very context-dependent status, that it is not an intrinsic property of X bacteria that it is always pathogenic no matter what host it runs into. Right. Yeah. Nothing is a pathogen across the board at all times in every context. Yeah. It's all about dynamics. That leads us back to this gene that we were talking about that was horizontally acquired, this DAE2. So to start off our discussion of your paper, what did you know about the function of DAE2 or its evolution? So we knew a lot about what it did in bacteria, the ancestral form, that basically it breaks down this outer layer of the bacterium called the cell wall, and that causes the cell to lose integrity and burst open. What we were trying to figure out is what are the exact microbes that this enzyme is actually trying to keep out of the tick? And what does that tell us about the biology of ticks? Everything we had done with the toxin in bacteria suggested that it only targeted a specific kind of bacteria called gram-negative. And that's just simply referring to bacteria that have two membranes that encapsulate the cell wall. It did not act against the opposite type, which is known as gram-positive, which does not have two membranes, only one. So that biased our entire worldview about this project where we were really looking at what are all the gram-negative bacteria that ticks run into? And we, in one fell swoop, kind of discounted skin bacteria, which are 
enrich for gram positives. So that was already just off our list. And that was, you know, a really silly thing for us to do. So since you knew that TAE2, the bacterial version, was targeting gram-negative bacteria, you thought, well, DAE2 must be doing the same thing. And so you mentally ruled out that it was impacting gram-positive bacteria, which are the, the bacteria that are more enriched in our skin microbiome. Yeah, we mentally ruled it out. And then finally, we just had enough people say like, what about skin bacteria? That we just finally tried it. We made a bet over a beer. Okay, fine. Let's just do this like negative control experiment. Get everyone off our backs so that we can move on. And so we got a natural staph strain that's associated with skin. And it was just this total, I don't know, almost profound moment where we mixed the toxin with the bacteria in a tube and it just went clear like in a second. After two years of just trying so many other things and like, oh, there's a little bit of change here. There's a little bit of change here to see that. We were like, oh my God, how were we not thinking about this the right way? And just a real lesson in how your biases can completely color the way you set up your experiments and the way you think about your data. So you started with this information about DAE2, and then you wanted to figure out how it had adapted and evolved once it became part of the tick genome. So how did you do that? And what were some of the key findings? One of the ways we were able to kind of break our own bias was that we solved the x-ray crystal structure. And what that was able to tell us is that the 3D form of the bacterial ones were actually different from the eukaryotic ones in some critical ways, particularly around the surfaces of the enzyme that mediate interactions with the cell wall. And that has huge implications for specificity, that if there are slight changes to that, that you could imagine a different specificity profile for the kinds of bacteria that it could target. So that really helps shape our thinking because it is not uncommon that when a gene jumps, that there is an evolution process that happens after that transfer event that enables the enzyme to evolve or the gene to evolve to better fit the biology and the needs of the recipient organism. The bacterial version of this gene became part of the tick genome about 40 million years ago, as you say in your paper. So that's a really long time for it to change to benefit and fit the needs of the tick. And so by comparing the bacterial version to the tick version of these proteins, you could see that they changed quite significantly. So that suggested to you that the function of that protein had changed to kill a wider range of different kinds of bacteria. Another aspect that you looked at about DAE2 was where it was present in the tick. And you found it in both the saliva and in the mm -hmm, gut of the mm -hmm. tick. Why do you think it's important that it was present in both of those locations? So those are both ground zero for ticks interacting with different microbes. In the gut is where incoming microbes would go. The field was very focused on antimicrobial properties and microbiota in tick guts when we started this project. The salivary glands is another really interesting place for two reasons. One is that bacteria like Borrelia have to actually travel from the tick gut to the salivary gland so that they can get regurgitated through saliva into your bite site, which is how they're transmitted. But it's also where you actually have the collision of so many different organisms. And for an ectoparasite, like a tick that has to feed on the outside of another organism, its immune system has to deal with things both in and outside of its body. 
Right. So you came at this question thinking about what is DAE's role in the tick gut. But by considering its presence in the saliva, now you're thinking about how it's facilitating the tick's interaction with the host that it's feeding off of. That brings you into thinking about how the tick is interacting with the host's microbiome. So how did you investigate that interaction between the host's microbiome and the tick? So the initial angle we took was just to ask a simple question of, can this enzyme kill the kinds of bacteria that are most commonly found on skin? And DHE was incredibly potent against those. But one of the big questions is like, well, why would it want to do this? Is the skin bacteria actually dangerous to the ticks? We did some comparative challenges of different types of bacteria against ticks, basically uh, injecting them into their bodies and seeing what that would do to them. It's not like in nature, someone's going around injecting bacteria into the anuses of ticks or anything, but it's like one proxy (laughs) for looking at that because we can inject a ton of Borrelia and we see no detrimental effect. A little bit of the skin bacteria caused the ticks to die within hours. So that was an indication to us that there's something different about the relationship between ticks and Borrelia and ticks and these skin microbes, and it looked to be antagonistic in nature. And then finally, we did measure the feeding success of the ticks when we knocked down the enzyme or not. And correlating with the rise in the skin bacteria and the ticks, we saw that their feeding weights went down and the rate at which they could consume blood slowed down. And so all of this was fitting together into a picture very different from where we started, that skin bacteria were their enemies. Right. So it's really funny because when we think of ticks, we think of the member of its microbiome, Borrelia, as the pathogen. So they bite that bacteria gets transferred to us and then that's bad for us. But we have bacteria on our skin that can get into the tick and is bad for the tick. So we both are basically using bacteria as weapons against each other. (laughs) Exactly. It's like two teams colliding with each other and having to contend with each other's teammates. Right. Yeah. It's actually even more complicated too. The tick basically has to have these antimicrobials in its saliva to protect itself but it also has to protect against the bite site getting overly infected because some of the skin bacteria, they're not pathogenic to us on the outside, but if they were to seep into our dermal layer past the outer barrier, they can become pathogenic even to us. And it's like a dual purpose for these antimicrobials to protect the tick and also to protect against infection of the bite site, which if that happened, you could imagine all the alarms in your skin would go off, you know, you would scratch it, it would inflame. There are a lot of things that are there to protect you against this exact sort of thing. It's almost a protective role like for a host, but the fact is like if they hadn't bit you, it wouldn't be a problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that way of thinking about us and our microbiome as a team, I really like that because you really cannot separate yourself from your microbiome. Yeah. And that now I also wonder if our skin microbiome has in any way evolved to provide this exact protective mechanism that maybe it's not an accident that they are toxic to ectoparasites like ticks because ticks arose before we did. We've never existed without bacteria and ticks around us. Yeah. I think that's a really nice segue into kind of what the bigger picture implications of this work are and how we can kind of 
operationalize some of this information. So the work identifies this microbial threat to ticks that we already have on our skin. Do you think there's a way that we could possibly exploit this to make ourselves more resistant to ticks? Yeah, for sure. Now, I think there's a lot of aspects of the biology in the system that if we just understood it better, we could manipulate all of these dynamics. The tick itself has clearly evolved a lot of antimicrobials that are specifically tailored to our skin. And so, as I mentioned, some of those microbes can become pathogenic to us. I mean, should we maybe borrow a page from the ticks playbook and tap into its antimicrobials for our own benefit? And then moving beyond microbes, part of the reason ticks are such an amazing partner for microbes like Borrelia is that they have basically become master scientists of our skin physiology. Because like mosquitoes and other blood feeding organisms, they have to bite into it. But unlike those, they have to stay there and basically build a home in your skin for sometimes over a week. And so think about all the things that it needs to deal with. It needs to deal with you noticing it and maybe pulling it off. So your ability to sense it, it enhances blood flow. It prevents your skin from healing over the bite. So it's achieving all of this, not by chance, but through molecules in its saliva that it's delivering throughout the blood meal. Borrelia itself capitalizes on all these different activities in tick saliva. So can we actually be like Borrelia and maybe we should actually exploit those exact properties in tick saliva if we were wanting to think about new ways of treating things related to skin, such as inflammatory skin diseases or sensory pathways, wound healing, that we should probably look to ticks that have been studying our skin for a very long time. I hadn't considered that way of thinking about it. What the tick is able to do in terms of augmenting our biology. Mm -hmm. So all the things that it can do to calm the site of infection, prevent infection, speeding up blood flow, you know, those have therapeutic properties as well. If you were to remove them from the fact that they're transmitting Lyme disease, but those could be used to treat different conditions. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And there's actually a great need for that. When we started thinking about tick saliva, I had to read a lot about skin and skin diseases, and there are very few drugs that effectively target itch and inflammation, a lot of things that are commonly associated with skin conditions and diseases. And so actually a colleague of mine, Kira Piskanzer, who's a neuroscientist at UCSF, she and I are co-founding a company to move in this direction, mining tick saliva for all these different therapeutic activities that could really solve a lot of problems that have been outstanding in the area of skin. I'm so interested in this. You are also a new PI. This is the first published paper from your lab, which I want to congratulate you on. But how do you decide what is a research project in your lab versus what you are now interested in founding a company on the basis of? Yeah, that's a great question. Part of it is that I've been wanting to study this problem for a long time, but it's a very open-ended question that isn't easily funded by academic grants that are generally more hypothesis-driven. And it was a clear opportunity to partner with biotech and think about how to do science outside of academia where the mission is really aligned. It makes sense to move outside of the academic sphere when you have like a really practical problem you're trying to solve. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's really interesting that you frame it in terms of like, it's not hypothesis driven in the way that you need to have like a really strong hypothesis when you're applying for a grant. Here, it's not a hypothesis. You know that there are factors in tick saliva, which mediate these interactions with the host. And your aim is to go out and find those, figure out how they work, and then turn these into therapeutic modalities that can treat this unmet need of skin conditions. And that's a really different way of thinking about like how you set up a project in academia. Exactly. Yeah, I actually wrote two grants that were not funded on this topic. Uh, And the feedback was, you know, you just need more preliminary data. We need you to focus on one mechanism, one pathway you know, at some point you just realize you're trying to fit like a square peg into a circle. I'm really just trying to mine what the activities are and see what practical uses exist. And that does not seem like a project for academia at this moment. I mean, later we may run into really interesting mechanisms that we'll want to follow down. And that would be great for the kinds of thesis projects that exist in graduate labs. Right. I love that idea of being like, is there a way to turn what we might call a fishing experiment into the basis of a startup as opposed to something that is a project that you can't get funded? Yeah. It's like an untapped resource of unfundable research could actually be the basis of a bunch of really interesting startups. It's been honestly really exhilarating. I think Kira and I feel like so excited to learn about a whole different incentive structure that we were honestly a little bit intimidated by before. I think as academics, there's a little bit of a, you know, feeling of like, oh, don't trust capitalist forces. Don't leave our academic bubble. I mean, no system is perfect. There's a lot of issues with the incentive structure in academia as well. And so you just have to figure out for your specific goal for this project, for example, you know, like what works best. And it's been really fun. I mean, there's just like amazing scientists and people outside of academia that I never had access to before that I'm really enjoying interacting with. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a whole different way of approaching the scientific endeavor. Totally. I think that that's another takeaway from all of this. And, you know, beyond just the actual scientific content, just how easy it is to bias yourself against certain ideas if you cling to your assumptions going in. Every time in my career that I have gotten a result that was not in line with what I expected, you always have that feeling of like resisting. And Mm -hmm. it is always the surprising result that you don't want that becomes the most interesting thing that you pursue. So yeah, I learn it over and over and over. It's just hard. I mean, it's always more fun to be right. But maybe it's more useful to be wrong. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Simei, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club today. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.